Good morning, dear friends. Thank you for being here on this seventh uh, of March in the year 2020 at the Flathead Lutheran Bible Camp. Glad you made the time to come out here and uh, very fortunate. I think last year when we were here around this time, there was about two feet of snow on the ground. Uh, so very different experience this year. Uh, are we recording this by any chance? Okay. I wanted to share a little bit about this theme that, of practicing from the inside out. A lot of this is born from all of our experience in the world and about our experience of suffering in the world and our experience of how we relate to that suffering. When the Buddha was uh, still uh, a prince before he was the Buddha, he touched into the suffering that we all experience, uh, the suffering of aging, the suffering related to uh, illness, and the suffering related to dying. And he had a deep, deep desire to ease that suffering. And he spent many years practicing and cultivating meditation and ways of training the mind and the body, both through deep kind of absorption meditations as well as deep ascetic practices. And what he realized during all those practices is that when he was finished with the meditation, uh, when he kind of left that absorption meditation, the bliss of, of letting go, that suffering was still there. Old age, illness, death was still there. It didn't go anywhere. He was able to uh, not um, engage with it uh, for a time. And, um, but it, it didn't satisfy that, that desire he had to end suffering. Um, and so he uh, began that practice of asceticism, of denying the body, food, uh, comfort, um, even grooming, and uh, practiced for, year, uh, for years just um, trying to feel, or trying not to feel or not be attached to the body and what the body was asking. Uh, and he practiced so rigorously that he almost died. Um, and uh, he was offered a bowl of rice by um, a young girl from the village. And he accepted it because he realized that his, uh, without his body, without him being alive, he was also not able to end suffering. He hadn't found the answer yet. Uh, so uh, he accepted that his friends uh, in the ascetic community shunned him for eating. Uh, they thought that he was weak. Uh, and he went off by himself and he sat down under the lotus, or under the um, Bodhi tree. Uh, and he, he just practiced. 
He just practiced following his breathing. He just had that deep, deep question, um, how to end suffering. And he uh, made a determination. Luckily, he had those years of ascetic practices, so he could make this determination that he would sit there until he figured it out. Um, and as the story goes, he was there for about seven days and nights. And uh, as uh, Venus was rising uh, one morning, he figured it out. Figured out how to end suffering. And then he had a choice. And this is the part that uh, I think is really interesting because he figured out how to end suffering. So he was free of suffering at this point, as the story goes. And um, he could have just lived the remainder of his life free of suffering. Uh, he was in his 30s when he did this. Uh, and he made a choice at that moment that, well, I think I need to share this with other people. I need to bring this out into the world. So who knows how many people before the Buddha have discovered uh, how to end suffering. We don't know. But we do know that this person uh, made a conscious decision uh, to go out and um, to share this practice, these teachings, with other people. Uh, so I, I think the Buddha was the first engaged Buddhist, uh, where he realized that um, being free of suffering by himself was not enough. Um, it wasn't enough to just uh, live his life free of that suffering. Uh, he realized that everyone, every person, every being needed to also be free of suffering. Um, and so he went out into the world and he taught, and he taught. Uh, he lived to be about 80 years old and, and continued to develop and grow the Sangha uh, during that time. And so, you know, we have this image of the Buddha sitting serenely, uh, sitting beautifully, embodying peace, embodying uh, freedom from suffering. Um, but I also want to bring that image of the Buddha as a uh, Sangha builder, as, uh, as a human being who decided that we can all benefit from this. Um, and that image for me is very helpful to remember uh, because I have a desire, I have a, a wish sometimes to retreat from the world. Uh, and luckily we can do it here together for a little bit, but uh, sometimes I think, man, wouldn't it be nice if life was just always retreat? Um, and I think, uh, I think the Buddha had that desire too. Um, he knew, and I think we all know that uh, if we, bring this out into the world, it's not going to be easy. Uh, we're going to have difficulties. Um, there will be people who um, 
disagree with us and who we disagree with. In fact, during the Buddha's life, uh, towards the end of his life, uh, there, his cousin, uh, Devadatta, uh, thought that the Buddha's Sangha wasn't uh, spiritual enough because they accepted meat uh, in their begging bowls. And so he, Devadatta started his own Sangha that was pure vegetarian uh, because the Sangha is full of people and people make these um, they have their own ideas and their own uh, uh, ways of being. But the Buddha has always uh, believed in um, the Sangha and believed in the ability um, to be engaged one with another. So that's a little of where this practicing from the inside out comes from. Uh, born of the Buddha's deep deep understanding, uh, he chose to bring that out into the world. Uh, he didn't keep it for himself. In, uh, there's many, many stories uh, called Jataka tales, uh, which are stories of the past lives of the Buddha. They're often children's stories. And uh, the Buddha, um, would tell these stories about uh, his past lives, uh, kind of a, a way of um, sharing an allegory. And uh, he shared one story about um, one time he was a parrot in one of his previous incarnations. And there was a huge forest fire in uh, the jungle where the parrot lived. And all the animals uh, in that that were able to, all the animals fled from the forest fire and you know, retreated to the cool waters uh, so that they could protect themselves. Uh, and part of the story is that at this time, all parrots were gray. So it was this gray drab bird. And um, the parrot was really troubled because the fire was, had trapped other animals, the trees were on fire, the whole ecosystem was at risk. And so um, the parrot would dive into the water and then fly over the fire and shake his wings uh, to sprinkle water onto the fire. Um, and he'd go back and do it again and again and again. Um, and the animals uh, made fun of the parrot for doing this. They said, why, why bother? Why are you doing this? It's, um, you obviously cannot put the fire out. Yeah. But the parrot uh, had, uh, had that deep desire uh, to serve, to help, to end suffering. And in the story, there's a, a realm of gods who live in kind of a pleasure realm. Uh, and it's, uh, in Buddhist tradition, it, it, living in that, that realm is not uh, quite as desirable because without any suffering, there's no need to practice because the Buddha had to have suffering in order to practice. But the gods were in this realm enjoying themselves and looked down and saw the, the parrot uh, doing its darndest to put the fire out. And um, it broke their hearts to see that because uh, here they were with all this power, all this ability, all this pleasure, um, and they did nothing uh, but watched. 
and it moved uh, the gods to tears, and those tears uh, manifested in our world as a rainstorm and um, put the fire out. Uh, also, when the tears landed on the parrot, uh, the parrot was given bright colors <laughs> so that people would notice it. You don't notice the drab graver, but you notice the colorful one. Um, this story, I think, is, is a beautiful one uh, because it illustrates a couple of, of key points in, um, in engaged practice. And one thing that it notices is, you know, when your heart breaks and when you have that desire to end suffering, uh, to ease the, the pain of others, to put out the fires of the world. Uh, it is really wonderful to do that, to follow that action. Um, but it's also not enough uh, to do it by yourself. Uh, we need help. We need one another. Um, the parrot's actions uh, in this story inspired uh, others to help. So we can remember that maybe our actions will inspire others, but it's also a reminder that um, um, we can't end suffering just on our own. Uh, we need one another. We need to come together to end suffering. And this is what the Buddha also realized, is that you can end suffering um, for yourself, but unless everyone else's suffering has ended, you're still a part of that. The world is still on fire. to um, spend a little time uh, talking about uh, talking about the uh, eight consciousnesses that um, that we are a part of it comes from the uh, manifestation only school the Abhidharma and um, the eight consciousnesses and many of us have heard some of these terms before but we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle today yeah. And I alluded to some of these earlier, uh, prior to our sitting meditation. Uh, we have the six uh, sense consciousnesses. Uh, so when our ears, uh, when the organ of our ears contacts something outside, a bell, and sound of someone shifting footsteps, and whatever it is, that sound and the ear together come together to form hearing. Um, if you remove one of those parts 
from that system, then hearing no longer is. If you have no ear, there is no hearing. There might still be sound, but there isn't hearing anymore. Um, likewise, uh, for the other consciousnesses, the sight, uh, when our eyes contact uh, the object of our sense, when our, we have a perceiver, uh, the thing perceived, and that contact forms consciousness. So we have sight or seeing consciousness. Smell, taste and touch. I find taste and touch a little interesting because they're a little closer to our bodies. You know, we taste inside our mouth. Touch, likewise, you know, it's a very, very close contact that we feel that uh, touch consciousness. Um, then we have the mind, uh, and the object of our mind is uh, mental formations, uh, thoughts, uh, feelings, and those um, come together to form mind consciousness. So those six are, are, are somewhat clear, and I hope, uh, for me, that, that question that I invited us to consider, uh, what is uh, whatever the sense, uh, what is hearing consciousness? What is hearing? And I like that next question. It helps me a lot um, to not get so locked in, into a, a form, which is where is hearing? Um, because it's very interesting when we start to think about uh, our consciousness is, is, is not uh, just uh, kind of in this closed system. It's out here, too. Um, and it becomes very powerful when we remember that uh, you're seeing me. I am the object of your consciousness right now of your seeing consciousness, but you are also mine. So we are creating each other. We are bringing each other into uh, this existence of consciousness. And under, underneath all of that, kind of the water, um, is what we call the uh, alaya, or the store consciousness. Store consciousness uh, contains um, the seeds of all existence, um, all of our experience, even our, our, our form and the form of the world is all part of this store consciousness. We often uh, think about or study store consciousness as uh, something that's, that's ours, uh, where we think about the seed of anger is in me. And when that seed is watered, it blooms into uh, my, uh, up here into my mind and uh, body consciousness. But store consciousness is not just yours. Uh, it's everybody's. And so in a very real way, when that seed of anger develops, um, 
the whole world's seed of anger also uh, develops. It's not just yours. It's not just mine. And there's one seed in particular that uh, is very tricky to work with. Uh, and this is the seventh, um, or the, I guess in my numbering here, the eighth consciousness. Uh, so we have the six senses, the store consciousness, and then there's a seed uh, called manas. Um, that manas has, uh, contains uh, ignorance, delusion, and when that seed is watered in the store consciousness, it emerges and immediately turns around and grabs onto some seeds in store consciousness and says, these are mine. This is me. This is myself. So that manas consciousness um, is born of the store consciousness. And it lives um, in this uh, realm of, of kind of imagination almost, of, uh, uh, of delusion. It lives in this realm of um, representation. Let me explain that uh, for a moment. In Buddhism, uh, they talk about three modes of perception. Uh, things just as they are is one mode. The second mode is representation. The third mode is the realm of uh, images. Images are very clear. We can, uh, when we just, you know, imagine, imagine whatever you want, uh, a white elephant. <laughs> Right, that's in the realm of images. Um, we rarely contact things just as they are. Um, when a baby is born, uh, there's some really good evidence that their world, their sensory world, is pure chaos. Um, their uh, ability to, um, it's just a world of shape, and color and sound, um, and uh, and all the other three senses uh, of touch, of um, taste, of smell. But they have no idea what that is. Um, very quickly, uh, infants' uh, brains help them. Uh, uh, all rooms have a little bit of an echo to them. Uh, and very quickly, infants' brains learn to filter out uh, some of that echo, so that sound kind of zeroes in, and they begin to understand, okay, this is this sound. I don't need those other sounds. Those are, are extra. This is the one I need to focus on. And you can just imagine uh, being a, a baby developing, and just all these things, you're starting to, to carve up the world and to say, okay, this is um, well, that sound. I know that sound. That's my dad. Right? It's like, okay, I know that. I know. Or um, that smell, that's mom. Okay, I recognize that. Uh, and you, it starts, the baby starts to put these things together. Um, 
So it's not a bad thing. Uh, if we lived in the world of uh, things just as they are all of the time, uh, it would be extremely difficult to function. Uh, just imagine all that information coming in and not uh, being able to filter any of it out. So, um, so we, we are able, though, to contact things just as they are. And I'm sure we've all had this experience uh, where we're somewhere doing something. And it's almost like the world just drops away a little bit. Uh, and we're not thinking, oh, this is a beautiful landscape. We're not interpreting what we're seeing. It's just coming in. And we're really just touching it as close to um, things just as they are as we can. Uh, can have this experience with people, with uh, landscapes, with situations. Uh, but most of the time we live in the world of representation. Uh, and as I said, that's not a bad thing. It's, uh, in fact, it's necessary to function. But if, um, you know, if we see a, a candle, just as it is, it's white with some yellowish and other color. Uh, if you're close to it, it you know, provides heat. But, um, but our, our brain puts it into candle. Now we have a representation. Uh, and then if you close your eyes, you can still see the candle. That's, uh, that's the, the realm of images. Um, manas, that consciousness which comes up out of store consciousness and then turns around and grabs onto uh, the seeds, lives solely in the world of representation. Um, manas is incapable of touching things just as they are. And that's why uh, we often hear um, uh, Buddhists talk about the world as an illusion, uh, because we're living in this uh, sense of, of representation. The beautiful thing uh, about this manas consciousness is that it is born out of store consciousness. So it's also, um, as we, um, as we develop our insight and understanding into uh, ignorance. Uh, ignorance is such a strong word, and I always hesitate to use it. Um, uh, often, sometimes it can just be thought of as without knowledge. As in other words, we just don't know yet. Um, but when I, you know, I, I don't ever want to use that as a label to um, kind of beat ourselves down, but more as a, a way of um, inspiring us to keep looking uh, so that the things that aren't known are known. Um, I had a friend who said, things are unconscious until they're not. Right? Once you know something, then it's no longer unconscious. You're no longer uh, living in that world of ignorance. Yeah. So that... Um, as we uh, touch into that, as we begin to uh, um, 
understand and look deeply into those places of um, uh, ignorance, of not yet knowing. Um, and as we develop that understanding of knowing, um, that tight grip that manas has on these seeds in the store consciousness starts to loosen a little bit. Starts to loosen a little bit. Um, so that, uh, you know, we can still look at a candle and know that it's a candle. Uh, but we're not uh, holding on so tightly to that idea of a candle. Uh, and that happens inside of ourselves, too. Um, whatever labels you carry for yourself. Yeah. Manas is holding on to those very tightly. And so um, when we start to touch into this idea of store consciousness being everywhere, all the time, not something that's just ours, um, it helps to loosen that grip a little bit on uh, uh, Manas' uh, ignorance learns, and it, we begin to develop a little bit more freedom, flexibility, ability to um, move in the direction of things just as they are. Um, and the reason for that is um, Manas always lives in that world of representation, uh, but we have these other uh, consciousnesses that can um, help us uh, to touch into that store consciousness. If we over-identify with manas, um, it's very, very difficult to um, find freedom. Uh, and it, we can even think of it as um, trapping, not allowing uh, store consciousness to be as uh, beautiful as it is in the world. So this uh, store consciousness, uh, with all the seeds of experience, of emotion, of um, form, of, um, of, of the whole universe, uh, is both uh, ours and not ours. It's collective and it's individual, but it's also neither collective, nor individual. Uh, manas is uh, wanting it to be ours. Uh, and it grabs onto this little sliver and says, mine. Um, and, um, and there is, um, because remember, manas is part of store consciousness, so that is part of it too. Um, there is this uh, uh, sense of identity. So it isn't quite... Uh, completely collective or completely individual, but it's also not, not collective and not, not individual. Uh, so um, please don't worry too much about uh, these, um, these ideas. It's not, um, the reason we, we teach these things, the reason we look at these things isn't so that we have more stuff to be confused about. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, it is very confusing. Uh, 
But what, it, what it's for is uh, all of the Buddhist teachings and all of the Buddhist teachings are there to help us end suffering. And so we are uh, learning and thinking and, and studying and, and practicing with these things uh, so that we can end suffering. Um, one part of um, manas that uh, is helpful for me to think about is that we are uh, embedded uh, not just in our, our uh, bodies uh, and our senses, uh, but we're embedded in these uh, nested um, systems uh, in our lives. Um, you have your uh, personal family uh, system where you uh, grew up and were emerged. We had, uh, we have a, a cultural system. Uh, many of us uh, experience uh, a gender system, uh, where um, men and women, boys, little boys, little girls, they're treated differently. And those things become, uh, Manas starts to grab onto those and put them into the, into the pile of seeds, right? It just grabs onto that more and more. We have our uh, um, more kind of social system, our, our, um, uh, our country, uh, and the values that, uh, that we're taught and that we're told. All of these things are, are uh, part of us. And um, these systems, uh, a lot of them, as we know, cause a lot of suffering, a lot of harm. Um, I look at our, um, the way that we treat our earth. Uh, and I'm not saying the way that you treat the earth. I'm saying the way that we treat the earth. Um, very painful. Uh, causes a lot of suffering um, for many, many beings. And for years, I tried uh, to uh, step out of that system. Uh, we um, changed the way that we ate and shopped, uh, uh, changed our habits around uh, water use and heating and uh, all of the, these things. Um, uh, made sure that we were recycling or, or reducing, right? Um, and uh, uh, those things are wonderful practices to do um, because uh, when, when we are a part of a system like that uh, and we start to change um, the habit energy around those things, it does start to change the system a little bit. However, I made a, a really um, terrible mistake, and that was to think that uh, in doing those things, I was no longer a part of the system uh, that was causing environmental harm. Uh, because I had, I had reduced my impact, um, 
that I stepped out of it. And when I did, when I made that mistake, uh, I um, gave up uh, responsibility. I gave up um, uh, kind of accountability, uh, and I. Um, in the song, it talks about, uh, you know, hiding when our minds would have us hide. I hid from that system. Uh, but as we know, um, as we know now, uh, and we're all experiencing, uh, we are deeply a part of that system. It doesn't matter what my individual actions are in terms of um, whether I'm a part of the system or not. It does matter what my individual actions are in terms of transformation of these things, but it does not um, uh, remove me from the system. In other words, I, can't, uh, I can no longer be kind of self-righteous about it, um, nor am I in a very good position to blame or judge others. Uh, for their actions, um, because we all have that impulse, right? When we, um, I saw one of my coworkers throw, uh, you know, a soda can away. I was like, "Come on!" <laughs> you know? I was like, "That's an easy one." That's but uh, there is this part of me that just, you know, and I had said something, and then I, um, they said, "Ah, you're right," you know, and then it's like my daughter's always doing the same thing, you know. <laughs> and, uh, um, the person's daughter is five, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, um, um, but it doesn't mean that I'm not uh, a part of that system that's causing environmental harm just because I'm changing some of my actions. Uh, this, um, this was the insight of the Buddha, is that transformation, ending suffering, uh, can't be done alone and in isolation. Uh, ending suffering has to be done, uh, engaged, in our practice, uh, in our world, in our society. practices uh, that we talked a little bit about with our senses uh, is a helpful way of uh, reminding and embedding uh, our experience, our consciousness, in things that are outside of ourselves. Um, it's a little more neutral uh, to say that, you know, the, the bird song in my ear contact each other and create ear consciousness. Uh, it's a little a little easier on our on our hearts um, to do that than it is to say that um, my being uh, an American 
um, living in this society is uh, harming our earth. Uh, that doesn't feel quite as good. Um, but it does, uh, uh, does remind me of where to uh, start looking for transformation. These systems that we're a part of are so close to us, just like our body is. Uh, just like uh, we can't step outside of our body uh, to practice, right? We're in it. We can't help it. Um, but our, our systems that we're a part of are also like that. We can't just step outside of them. They are, uh, they are us. We are them. But just like we don't, uh, when our body is suffering, um, we don't just kind of stop and say, well, I guess my body's suffering. Right? We try to do something. And we try to, uh, to heal. Uh, boy, a, a real simple example is when we're sitting and, and you know, our body's uncomfortable. Sure, maybe for a little bit we might say, like, oh, how uncomfortable is it? Is this a discomfort I can live with? Um, but there comes a time when we just need to move. Um, and it's the same thing with these uh, systems that we're a part of. Um, maybe there are parts of them that we're willing to accept. Um, and uh, um, my concern, uh, kind of born of my, my own experience is that um, I uh, uh, just developed that learned helplessness uh, where you just stop trying to change things. Mm -hmm. The, uh, the self-help industry uh, knows this desire in ourselves very well. Uh, so um, when you're suffering, uh, here's a way uh, that you can um, avoid that suffering, right? So let's think about uh, mindfulness uh, practice. Um, let's imagine that you are in a um, large corporation that uh, has a work environment that is very stressful. Uh, and one day the management team comes in and they say, hey, we've got this new program that will really help you. It's called mindfulness. Uh, it helps you focus and be in the present moment. Uh, you know, it helps you reduce stress. And so they uh, give this to the employees, uh, the management team says, here you go, here's this program, we'll even give you company time to do it. And then um, the employees kind of uh, work uh, at this mindfulness, they um, figure out ways of uh, noticing when they're stressed and taking a, a breathing break, right, all these things. Um, my question is, what else is the corporation doing to relieve stress? Um, they're not doing anything. In fact, they're making it uh, the employee's responsibility 
to manage their stress. We have uh, a tendency in our society, particularly in uh, the American, the United States society, to uh, put all of the responsibility on the individual. If you're suffering, uh, it's because you are not practicing hard enough or right enough or well enough. Um, sometimes that might be true, and sometimes it is not true. Sometimes we're suffering because, um, because the systems that we are a part of are causing us to suffer. Uh, a couple of nights ago, a friend uh, said, uh, it's like the wallpaper, um, right? After a while, these systems, they're all around us all the time. And just like the wallpaper, you stop seeing them. Uh, they're just an inevitable part of existence. But that's not true. You know, they're not inevitable. Maybe they're inevitable, but they're not um, permanent. Uh, and so it's, um, Thich Nhat Hanh very clearly understood this when he formed uh, the Order of Interbeing during wartime in Vietnam. There were villages that were destroyed, and the order of interbeing at that time, which was uh, six people, uh, went in with a, 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 another group of activists and rebuilt the villages. Uh, and then they were destroyed again, and they were rebuilt again. Uh, because uh, it wasn't okay to just sit and practice uh, breathing, accepting, being in the present moment alone. That was the base, the foundation. Um, but the, uh, the work of transformation happened out in the world. Um, so I, I want to offer that uh, suggestion that when we do our practice of deep looking uh, into our, ourselves, uh, into our suffering, that we don't um, take all of it. That we remember that we are not in isolation. We don't, um, we don't live separate from everything else that we're a part of. Uh, our practice gives us the responsibility to work towards uncovering those and towards transforming um, some of those seeds, but it also gives us the uh, invitation to do that out in the world, uh, to do that, um, that together. And it's interesting. Um, you know, many of you who are activists uh, know that there is this very strong pressure from the uh, systems that we're a part of to not let us change. Uh, you can see this, um, I see this very clearly in my family. Uh, uh, you know, I have wonderful, these great insights, and then I come 
and then I would go home and uh, wouldn't matter how old I was, I was about 15, right? <laughs> it's uh, because, um, you know, family would uh, engage with me in that way and then I would engage back in the same way. But uh, when, the, um, when we start to change those habits, uh, when we start to shift the, the, the system that lives in us, um, that family system that is a part of us, when we start to loosen that, when we start to allow um, mamas to, to just uh, be a little broader, to allow us to touch more deeply into that store consciousness, um, the family works really hard to not let us do that. I have this experience uh, where, my, um, where my, my parents will be frustrated in some way that I'm not responding in a particular way that's very familiar to them. Uh, even if I, I'm doing something different, they try to put it into a box of like, oh, well, you just always do that. It's like, okay. You know, it's, it's all right. Uh, uh, and um, the amazing thing is that the more uh, we start to loosen those, those knots uh, from that system, uh, the more that the system kind of rises up um, in a good way uh, to transform. Uh, so what happens is um, um, those pressures that try to get us to change uh, start to ease a little bit, and instead of trying to fit the old habit, there, a new system starts to emerge. Uh, one that um, has a little more um, uh, spaciousness around it. This isn't always possible in every family system. Um, and even if we're not engaged with our families, uh, that transformation in us loosens that system for uh, people who are, who are our ancestors, because those things have come down through generations. And importantly, too, uh, it loosens it for the next generation. Uh, I often see very clearly in my children uh, seeds that um, have been passed down through my family system, um, some positive, some negative. And I also see where some of the seeds are not uh, being passed down. Some of the more difficult ones are not being grown in them. And uh, uh, so that means when they start, um, you know, if and when they start a family, uh, those seeds will not be transmitted uh, to their children. And who knows what transformation will happen. Um, this uh, practice, our, our mindfulness, our deep looking, our, uh, our study, uh, help us um, develop a, um, I guess maybe we could think of it as, as an ethical self. Uh, I know self is kind of a, a dirty word in, in Buddhism, but because um, it's all about the non-self, but uh, but this kind of um, a foundation uh, that, that carries through. We all have um, different roles in different situations. I, I remember I was uh, talking with a, a family on the phone um, 
in our uh, hospice office uh, talking to them about planning a memorial service and uh, one of my coworkers uh, said like hey nice phone voice you know after I got off the phone I was like, and you know I was like what are you talking about that's just my voice she's like no it's not just your voice that's not how you talk like you have a phone voice and I was like yeah I guess I do um, I do have a phone voice I, I, <laughs> I had another experience too um, when I, I started uh, uh, working as a hospice chaplain about 11 years ago and I remember uh, one time I uh, very early in the work I came home and uh, uh, didn't have kids yet actually I was gonna say kids were somewhere it's like no they weren't <laughs> they, they were somewhere but uh, they weren't in the room um, and uh, and I was playing a, a video game and I was like, oh my gosh, do, do chaplains play video games? <laughs> like, is this allowed? Is this permitted? <laughs> uh, and I talked to one of the nurses that I worked with about that. I was like, you know, I had this like experience, like, oh my gosh. And, and uh, um, the next day she brought me a uh, postcard of a bunch of um, Tibetan monks on a roller coaster <laughs> with like their arms up in the air. and. Uh, some of you may have seen that image, and and um, boy, what a what a teacher she was uh, to share that because I was on the verge of uh, letting manas uh, grab onto these seeds of a representation of what a chaplain is. Right? I had an idea of what a chaplain is and does, and manas was like, yeah. Yeah, grab that. That's a good one. Yeah, let's grab that. Um, and she helped me not to form that uh, that self, that identity. Um, but there is still an ethical self that's grounded in uh, our uh, in our compassion. Uh, that's grounded in our love. Uh, that's grounded in our um, understanding, uh, our equanimity and our uh, ability to truly celebrate with others joy. Those, um, those are the Brahma Viharas uh, of loving kindness, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, uh, sometimes translated as the measurable minds of love. Um, so our ethical self isn't necessarily an identity it's not a, another thing for manas to grab onto, um, but rather it's our actions. Uh, it's what we do in the world. Um, it's how we are. Um, we have to be careful uh, because it's, we want to develop that. Uh, you can see very easily how manas wants to grab onto that yeah, yeah, you're a compassionate person. Yeah, yeah, that's you. Grab it. Um, uh, and if, it, if Manas wants to grab onto that, that's fine. Uh, but let's be careful not to allow uh, Manas to think that that is enough. Uh, to think that being a compassionate person, which of course, as we know, as we heard, is just a representation. Um, what matters is what we do how we are, how we live. Um, so uh, 
we're familiar with the uh, five remembrances. Um, well, they're a daily practice of um, reminding ourselves that we are of the nature to grow old. There's no escaping growing old. Um, I'm going to back up. I'm, that's the, how it's uh, translated. I like to change that uh, to we are of the nature to age. Um, because uh, uh, I've worked with too many people who do not grow old, uh, but they did age. Um, so we are of the nature to age. There is no escaping aging. Uh, we are of the nature uh, to have ill health. There is no escaping ill health. We are of the nature to die. There is no escaping death. Everyone we love and everything that is dear to us is of the nature to change. There is no escape from being separate, separated from them. Those are the four. Uh, the three were the uh, first three are what the Buddha uh, saw uh, when, he is, when he was able to leave uh, his, his palace and actually witness uh, suffering in the world. The fourth is a reminder that uh, nothing is of the nature to stay the same. And then the last remembrance is that um, we inherit the results of our body, speech, and mind. Our actions are the ground on which we stand. Uh, so we don't want to get caught by this, um, by this uh, self, this representation of self that the manas uh, is um, really good at creating. Um, but I can kind of stand behind this ethical self, uh, this self based on action, um, based on doing. And that, um, that ethical self uh, comes from uh, just a deep, deep felt experience and understanding of suffering in the world. Uh, when we touch that suffering, hurts. Um, it's big. Uh, it's universal. We all have it. And that's where our desire, uh, the um, bodhicitta, the desire to wake up, to be free of suffering, uh, to be compassionate, to be kind and loving. That's where that comes from. Um, because it's a beautiful, beautiful practice. Uh, this practice. This practice teaches us how to, uh, how to care. I know it says in the song, it's not enough to care. A little different caring here. How to care in uh, for everything that we come into contact with, for the suffering, for the beauty, 
for each person, for each being. We can't help it. We can't help but want to care uh, when we touch that suffering. Because um, when we do touch into that suffering, there will be a desire to hide, to protect, uh, to shield, um, because it can be overwhelming. Um, and uh, there's also a desire to, to ease it, to end it and to open up our hearts so wide, so big, so um, expansively and all-encompassingly that we, we, want to, um, we want to be fully awake, not controlled by that manas anymore, to touch things just as they are. Uh, we want to do that because we love the world so much that that's where that comes from. It comes from our love. It doesn't um, come from our pain. Our pain is our window into touching into that love because just as deep as the suffering in the world is, also as deep is the love and the care that we can exhibit. Um, so we come on retreat, uh, we come here, um, we come here to, to pause uh, all of the uh, suffering, to maybe get some new wallpaper for a minute, uh, um, to remember that, um, that we have this capacity, uh, to really focus inward, because uh, remember the Buddha, uh, spent seven days by himself under a tree by the river. Um, so he knew what retreating was. Uh, he knew that he needed that time and space to look deeply. Uh, but then he got up and he went out into the world. Um, so my invitation of, uh, for this practice is that we, we come into this retreat and the state of mindfulness, uh, and we touch into that stability, that, uh, uh, that ethical self, that um, care, that love. Uh, and then we realize that, okay, this isn't where the practice ends, right? Touching that isn't the end, that's the beginning. And then we ask ourselves, now what? I've touched this feeling of peace, solidity, ease, freedom. Now what? That's our invitation, is um, what happens after we leave. That's, I don't want to say that's where the real practice is, but that's where the rest of the practice is. Uh, this is. This environment is just a tiny part of the rest of the practice. Um,
Dear friends, before we stand, um, our next opportunity is to come together to enjoy mindful eating. And we will form a circle out in the hall and um, have a short contemplation that we will read before we go to mindful eating meditation. Um, following that, we will have our outdoor walking meditation at one o'clock and we'll meet right outside at one and share some songs um, as we gather. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, okay. That's enough. And so I think um, we have between now and one to enjoy a meal and some perfect personal time. There's also a Donna box there for your um, offerings for Greg and his teachings. Um, as we know, the Buddha's teachings are offered freely, but our donations and Donna is greatly appreciated. Thank you.